Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship ready to study God's Word, ready to focus and concentrate on the application of God's Word in our own lives as God the Holy Spirit teaches us and illuminates our minds to the significance of God's Word in terms of our own application. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together uh, this morning to worship you through the highest form of worship, which is studying, learning your word, that we may apply these things in our own lives, that we may learn to think as you think, that we may have your attitude, your mindset, your value system uh, inculcated into our own thinking, that we may reflect you and your thinking, reflect your glory in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this time of uh, uh, war against terrorism and the potential of war against Iraq, that you would give our president wisdom, clarity of thought, that his advisors would also have clarity of thought, that, that they would have the correct information brought before them, that they may be able to make wise decisions. We pray for our military. We pray that those who are going overseas, we pray that you would uh, watch over them. We continue to pray that you would... Uh, provide for this congregation as we continue to teach your word. We pray that you would continue to use the doctrine that is taught here to uh, communicate to those who are in this area who are positive to your word. Father, we commit this time to you for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we begin a new section in 1 Corinthians. Now remember, in our study of 1 Corinthians, we have seen that this is an epistle that has been brought on by various problems in the church at Corinth. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul makes it clear what the spiritual status is of the congregation in Corinth. They are carnal. That is, not that they were always carnal, but the pri primarily they were operating on the sin nature, and this was evident by, a, by its manifestation in various problems in the congregation. Specifically, in the first chapter, there is an emphasis, there is an erroneous emphasis on Greek, the Greek concept of knowledge and wisdom. And there he contrasts the wisdom of this age, the in verse chapter 1, verse 20, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God 
made foolish the wisdom of this world. So there is at the very beginning of this epistle a contrast between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. As a result of human viewpoint thinking, which is always the result of sin nature control in the life of the believer, that manifested itself in various attitudes and actions in the congregation. The first that was set up was that there were divisions set up as they followed specific teachers, Apollos, Paul, Peter, and they sought to identify themselves with teachers just as those in the broader Greek culture at large sought to identify themselves with different uh, different leaders or different teachers in the philosophical schools. This, of course, is the result of arrogance. This is a major problem in this congregation that is reiterated not only um, in chapter 4, but again at the end of chapter 4, but underlies uh, the problems in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Now, the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians, the first five chapters focused on the general problems of arrogance. And then starting, so we'll put that up here, chapters 1 through 5, you had the general problem of arrogance in the congregation. And part of this is a whole comprehension of this human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Chapter 1, human viewpoint, he speaks of as as wisdom. And then in chapter 3, it's contrasted with the knowledge of the things of the Spirit of God. So there is a distinction made, remember, in chapter 2, between the things which I has seen and neither that which I has seen or ear has heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So there we have this distinction between different kinds of knowledge. And I'm going through this all as sort of a background to understanding uh, what's, what he's going to say in chapter 8 and following. It is not, it's, it's very common for people to uh, misunderstand the first verse of chapter 8, where Paul says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up or makes arrogant, but love edifies. And so there are people who come along and want to make this contrast between knowledge on the one hand and love on the other hand. Now, when you have a culture like we have in United States at this time, where you have this trend towards emotionalism, trend towards uh, psychology, trends towards subjectivism, trends to- toward emotion, what happens is they want to set up it, it, they set up this contrast as if it's one or the other, but that completely misunderstands the whole structure of 1 Corinthians. He is not contrasting knowledge per se with love. He is contrasting a certain kind of knowledge, and this is a knowledge that is that's based on human viewpoint, and consequently it is going to produce arrogance. And this is what's contrasted with, with love. And he sets this up the first time back in chapter 9 where he talks about the first kind of knowledge, which is empirical knowledge. And this is represented by eye and ear, in other words, sense data. 
Then he says, I has not seen, ear, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. The term heart frequently, most often, refers to the thinking facilities of man, thinking facilities of the soul, the mind. And so here we have a reference to rationalism. And then he says, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So this is revelation. So Paul makes a clear distinction between empirical knowledge, knowledge that proceeds from just thought alone, rationalism, versus revelation. Now in between here, I often put in mysticism, which also comes from the mind. See, the ultimate authority in rationalism is thinking. Mysticism also comes out of the mind, You just except it's based on intuitive insight and it rejects logic. So it is irrational. It is actually rationalism gone to seed. But you have empiricism and rationalism versus revelation. And that becomes the background for understanding this is the knowledge that he mentions here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, is the word in the Greek gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S, as opposed to epinosis. And epinosis refers to that full knowledge that we have in the soul that is the product of believing doctrine that is stored in the soul under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So in this short opening, he is going to drive us right back to the basic problem at Corinth, which is, They're still operating on human viewpoint concepts of knowledge. Now, the Greeks had a word for the study of knowledge, which we have brought over into, into English, and that is the word epistemos, and we bring it over into the word epistemology. And epistemology is considered a branch of philosophy a branch of philosophy that deals with thinking. How do we know what we know? How do we learn things? How does the human mind come to know certain things? How do we perceive truth? What is truth? All of these are facets of the whole discipline of of epistemology. In other words, how do you know anything? How do you know that God has spoken to you as opposed to the fact that you just have some sort of impression and it's maybe just some sort of subjective emotion? Many people adopt, especially in in a lot of evangelical circles, they adopt a very loose, imprecise way of talking. And you've heard people like this. They'll constantly talk about, well, God spoke to me and he wants me to do this, and God spoke to me and wants me to do that. Well, wait a minute. How did God speak to you? Did you hear a voice? Did somebody else hear the voice? Is it objectifiable? Was there... Was there evidence that substantiated this speaking? See, whenever God speaks in the Scripture, whenever you see him speaking in private to someone, there was always an accompanying validation, uh, an objective validation that that went along with it. So somebody couldn't just wake up one morning and say, well, God told me to do uh, thus and so, and uh, it's just their subjective impression. So epistemology is the whole area of how you know what we know, and the first time I really ran across this word was when I was starting seminary, and I would hear several professors all say this, make the same statement, that is the major crisis facing uh, the church in the late 20th century is an epistemological crisis. 
and that is true, and you get it from a couple of different directions. The first direction is we get it from inside the church in terms of the charismatic movement. And that's the basic problem with the whole charismatic movement is that their epistemology, the way they know truth, isn't from Scripture alone, but it is Scripture plus the subjective impressions. God spoke to me. Well, is God still speaking today in the way he spoke in the Old Testament and in the early days of the church age? No, he does not. God no longer speaks in that way. He leads, but he does not lead through this same type of verbal auditory revelation. So you have a problem from the charismatic camp. You have another problem from liberals where they say God cannot speak and does not speak to man at all and has not in all of human history. And even if he did speak, we're so messed up by virtue of sin that we couldn't understand what he was saying anyway. Well, that ultimately that involves a presupposition that God cannot speak clearly to man. He cannot understand the basic problems of man clearly enough to be able to communicate to him. So you have a second epistemological problem, which is, which comes from liberals, and that is that God hasn't spoken of and spoken to us, and therefore the Bible is not the God's word to man, but it is man's the the a human record of spiritual experiences. Now, once you redefine the Bible in terms of a human record about God, then all of a sudden the Bible is very fluid and you no longer know what the Bible says. But what's happened here is you've gone back and you've redirected your your thoughts so that the ultimate authority is no longer the Word of God, but you are now judging the Word of God by either rationalism or empiricism. And instead of the authority being located in revelation, the authority is now located in the human mind. So man sets himself up to be God. This is how you get into the, this is a relationship now between two key subjects that are going to be developed in the next few chapters, and that is not only the problem of authority and revelation, but the problem of idolatry, the problem of knowledge and the problem of idolatry. So the, and the, part of this is the concept of love. Love edifies. Now, as I said earlier, in terms of the structure of 1 Corinthians, the first five chapters, or six chapters rather, the first six chapters deal with the basic problems in Corinth. Then starting in chapter 7, with the use of this Greek phrase, peri P-E-R-I-D-E, translated concerning, now concerning this, Paul begins to address various subjects, and this really breaks down the organization of this whole section. Now, when we come to chapter, uh, chapter 8, we have a Perry Day there that introduces this subject. Now concerning things offered to idols. Now that seems to set up a subject of, of one subject that's restricted to idolatry. But if you look carefully at your scriptures, 
You'll notice there's not another phrase concerning in the English or peri-day in the Greek until uh, chapter 12. And then there is not another one until we get down to uh, chapter 16. So this entire section, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and I think also, and it leads into 12 through 14, are all part of a basic subject matter, and this subject matter is going to address not only the problem of knowledge and idolatry, but the real issue that underlies this entire section is understanding what love is. Understanding what love is in terms of the fact that it's not putting self first, it is putting others first. And the one unifying principle that goes through all of these chapters is a problem that it's arrogance versus love. See, the problem in 1 Corinthians 8.1 is not knowledge versus love. It's the wrong kind of knowledge, but it's a knowledge that comes from arrogance. And it's really arrogance versus love. And so the problem that you see in chapter 8 is going to be this problem of the weaker brethren, the stronger brethren, whether or not they can eat meat that's been offered to idols, and it leads into the whole question of doubtful things. What can the Christian uh, do in, in areas where the Bible doesn't specifically address whether something is right or wrong? And this has led to a lot of problems, the development of a lot of legalism that is associated with Christianity that is completely false, and, and in many cases a misunderstanding of the entire doctrine of the weaker brother versus the stronger brother. Now, we won't get into that probably until next Sunday because we have some other things to do to lay in terms of laying the groundwork at the first part of Chapter 8. But I just want to give you an overview of this section this morning before we get start getting into details. In Chapter 8, Paul is going to introduce this subject of... of um, putting the other person first, being more concerned about the weaker brother and hurting the conscience and thereby creating a spiritual uh, stumbling block for the weaker brother. That's a manifestation of love. You're not concerned about your freedom and your rights, but you're concerned more about how this might affect some other believer. And so because it might have a negative effect on a specific believer, then it, you decide that you, rather than exercising your rights, you'll give it up for their benefit. That is a manifestation of love. Then in, verse, or in chapter 9, he is going to give a personal example. He starts off, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? In other words, the issue underlying chapter 8 is, yes, the believer is free in certain areas. There are decisions that we make in life. There are categories of, of life that do not involve a decision of sin versus non-sin or morality versus immorality, but it calls upon an interplay of wisdom and the application of the principle related to impersonal love for other believers. And so Paul says that is going to make the case that as an apostle, he clearly has the right to be supported by a local congregation. However, because this has created a false issue for some people, Paul has chosen, he chose to give up that right and to work instead and to be, be self-supporting. But he is going to emphasize the principle 
of support for the pastoral ministry and the, the fact that a congregation should support, financially support, the pastor. Then in chapter 10, he's going to come back and he's going to tie this together with idolatry again. He's going to go back to the Old Testament. He's going to bring in the example that Israel has said in the Old Testament, the problems that came to Israel because of idolatry. See, we start off 8.1 with relating it to idolatry. Then he emphasizes these principles in terms of, of, uh, of impersonal love. Then in 10.14, he's going to tie this right back to idolatry and bring in the general principle of doing all things to the glory of God, which, of course, is going to be related to loving one another as Christ loved the church. Then in chapter 11, he seems to make this shift again, and he starts talking about head coverings for men and for women, and then he's going to go to the Lord's table. But you see the problems they were having in the church because of breakdowns in role relationships with men and women was because they didn't understand love. They didn't understand that, that love still does not negate role distinctions. And it also creates a problem when they would come together as a body of believers rather than serving one another. They're, they're more concerned about their own personal pleasure and they're all coming to the Lord's table as if it's an orgy. Once again, the basic problem is they don't have a clue what it means to love one another as Christ loved the church. And then there's another Perry Day in chapter 12, verse 1, but sandwiched in between 12 and 14 is probably the most positive statement in all of Scripture on what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, 1 through 8. And there he is going to make several key uh, statements related to what love is, and he describes it through various characteristics. Love is a notoriously difficult word to define. If you want a little exercise sometime, try to sit down and define what love is rather than describe what love is. Now, if you've never worked much with a dictionary, you may not understand the, the difference, but you can describe something, and that doesn't define it. Definition is something that is much more precise than a simple description, and yet love, if you look the word love up in the dictionary, about the second or third word you'll see is emotion. And that doesn't fit anything that the Bible says about love. So you can't even go to a regular Webster's Dictionary, American Heritage, or any other dictionary and get a decent definition of love because it always starts with human experience and it always starts with emotion. And yet that's just the opposite of what we see in Scripture. So Paul gives us a description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, that love suffers, love is long suffering or patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. And love is not arrogant in that first verse. So he uses the same word there that he uses back in 1 Corinthians 8 1, contrasting love with arrogance. And in that whole context, of course, he's really talking about the use and misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues and prophecy in the church at Corinth, and the problem there was they failed to understand that the use of spiritual gifts is part of the function of impersonal love in the life of, of the believer because spiritual gifts are given to benefit one another in the body of Christ. It's amazing. The more I 
as I'm speaking this morning and teaching on the introduction here to 1 Corinthians, as well as thinking about this chapter, uh, it's a basic problem I had all week. It's, I was thinking through both the First Corinthians study this morning and the first and the Second John study. Is they overlap so much? I have I kept having a tendency. I would be working on one passage, and next thing I knew, I was developing something that was really related to the other passage. And then the next day, I'd be working in Second John, and I would be back in First Corinthians eight again, because these ideas overlap. That love has to do with the believer. Not simply, not, not simply avoiding mental attitude sins towards other believers. Remember the key, the primary laws we've studied in 1 John for the church age is the law of love, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And this is the law that is going to be the primary principle for application in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But if we're going to love one another as Christ loved the church, part of that involves the function of our spiritual gifts towards one another. Spiritual gifts are not designed for personal edification. That is the primary purpose related to a spiritual gift, and this was the primary problem that you had at Corinth and the way they were using the gift of tongues. And it's the primary problem in the entire charismatic movement today is they try to interpret the gift of tongues as a prayer language you know, once they got past the uh, the the beginning in, in in tongues, the beginning of the tongues movement back in 1900, they the initial leaders in the modern Pentecostal movement, Frank Parham and others back in the 1900s, all thought that when this would finally manifest itself, it would be a known language, and they could all go out and be missionaries to China and to Burma and to India and take the gospel. But it became evident that the Chinese, that Agnes. Uh, Sanford was speaking, or that uh, Agnes Osmond was speaking at the, uh, she was the first one to speak in tongues back in 1901, that it wasn't Chinese at all, it was just gibberish. So they had to back up and retool, and obviously something was happening. So like many uh, superficial believers, they immediately jumped to the conclusion that when something you can't explain happens, it must be the Spirit of God. So since it must be the Spirit of God, then um, obviously we were wrong, and it must be a prayer language. But you see, uh, so-called prayer language, so-called devotional language, all has to do with self-edification. And a spiritual gift, by definition, is designed to edify or for the benefit of other believers in the body of Christ. That's why you have to have a local church. That's why the normative pattern for believers is to be involved in a local church, because the spiritual gifts are designed to be a part and a function of your priesthood. And priesthood functions in the context of a body of believers, not in isolation, not sitting out at home, waking up and watching television, listening to a tape recorder, listening to a message on the Internet. That may be necessary at times, and it may be an unusual circumstance, but the normative picture in Scripture is that part of your spiritual life, it's not part of your spiritual growth, it's not a means of spiritual growth, but part of your spiritual life is functioning within the context of the body of Christ and a local assembly of believers. And over the years, I have run into different people, and I know there are opportunities, I mean, not opportunities, but I know there are occasions, I know there are situations that are extremely difficult where people live in, in uh, places where 
Uh, it's very difficult to find a church where you can just basically orient yourself and say, okay, I can put up with this. Uh, the music's terrible. They're, this is bad, but this teaching is shallow. But, but at least I can put up with it, and maybe I can have a ministry here in some sense and have some kind of an impact. And that's really getting more and more difficult to do these days because as broader-based evangelicalism becomes more and more uh, dominated by emotionalism and becomes more and more dominated by lordship, salvation, and so many other screwy ideas that are coming into Christianity today, it is very difficult to find a place where you can uh, just sort of put up with some stuff and still have an opportunity to minister. But that is the purpose that is part of the function of the believer's spiritual life is ministering to one another. So this is the normal situation. This is what is to be expected. And there are always people you run into who uh, want to somehow go it alone and never have anything to do with any other Christians. And that, too, is another function of arrogance because it does not relate to the overall body of Christ as a whole. Okay, all of this is just by way of introduction to chapter 8, that this is going to introduce a new subject, and the underlying theme that goes through the next five or six chapters is related to the doctrine of love and impersonal love and how that manifests itself and, and how that is a problem in various situations and circumstances in the Corinthian church. So let's look at verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols. And then as you see in the quotation on the overhead, in the New American Standard, there is a colon there. We know that we all have knowledge. Now I have made, a, made this point before, is that there are places here that aren't clearly indicated in your English translation that are, Paul is repeating a statement or slogan that has become characteristic of the Corinthian church. It characterizes their human viewpoint thinking. And we saw this back in chapter 6, where they had a problem with, with uh, sex and sex and spirituality. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, they had the slogan, It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that was their, their theme, that it was better not to have sex, and that somehow that was uh, a more spiritual situation. And there are other cases here where, where throughout this epistle where we're going to see that Paul reiterates these slogans that have come to characterize the arrogant mentality of the Corinthians. So their point is, we know that we have all knowledge. And there we have the word gnosis. Again. Gnosis is simply academic knowledge, and it can relate to academic knowledge of any subject. It can be philosophy, it can be mathematics or science, it can be uh, finance, it can be related to the Scripture. But it is simply that it is academic knowledge. It is not the kind of knowledge that has been converted to epinosis. So we have to do a little review here of... The grace learning spiral, GLS, the grace learning spiral. This is how we learn spiritual truth and how we avoid succumbing to arrogance 
the arrogance of simply being on a knowledge trip. So you run into that. I mean, I've seen it all my life in almost every church where you get people who are hungry to learn the Word. There are always some people, and I think it's characteristic of spiritual immaturity, some people who confuse knowing doctrine with spiritual maturity. No, Just because you know doctrine doesn't mean you're spiritually mature or you are applying doctrine. You can know a tremendous amount about the Bible and not apply anything. Remember, Satan knows more about the Bible than probably most of us are ever going to know in our lifetime. He's been studying it for several thousand years, and he was around and observing when most of it was being given. So you have the grace learning spiral to avoid arrogance. The pastor-teacher communicates the word. Now, we can't understand it on our own, but we have the filling of the Holy Spirit who teaches us. He illuminates our thinking to the truth of God's Word, and he makes God's Word understandable. Now, as we think on it, we have to come to a place where we understand it, and at that point, once we understand it, we have to exercise our volition, either positive or negative, to... to uh, uh, Believe it or not. But we have to understand it first. You cannot believe something you do not understand. basic concept of belief is to give assent or affirmation to a proposition. That means that you have to, to agree that something is true. You have to understand to some degree what that is. Now, we all know that there are certain principles of Scripture that at different stages of our Christian life, we understand more fully. We grow in the knowledge of our of our Savior. And so we may hear a statement related to the fact that Jesus Christ is God, and we may believe it at some elementary level, and that still becomes epinosis to some degree. Then, as we go through further study and we begin to understand the significance of the deity of Christ, we believe it more fully. We understand that he is eternal, that he has all of the attributes of God, and that he manifested those attributes while he was on the earth during the incarnation. And we understand that, and we add more to it. So knowledge is incremental. We don't understand the whole doctrine all at once, but we understand it in bits and pieces, and we add one element to another element. Uh, and that's why we study line upon line, precept upon precept. So we have to understand it first. You don't understand it simply because you can reiterate what the pastor says. Just because you can use the verbiage that the pastor uses, just because you can quote back what somebody else says, doesn't mean that you understand it. We all have gone through situations in academics where we had to pass exams, and we didn't really understand everything that was there, but we went through the process and we memorized uh, everything that was in our notes, and we regurgitated them on the exam, but we really didn't have a clue uh, how that quadratic equation actually worked, but we knew enough to be able to pass the exam. So you have to believe, understand something before you believe it, then you exercise positive volition, and at this point... The exercise of positive volition is simply related to the whole concept of meditating on God's Word, thinking about it, and to understand it. At this point, it becomes gnosis, or simple academic knowledge. Now, in 
the course of life, we all know a tremendous amount about any particular subject. For example, you may enjoy cooking. Now, over the course of time, you probably know a tremendous amount about cooking and the interaction of different uh, elements in cooking, how uh, different kinds of flour interact with different kinds of yeast and what happens when you use hot water or whether you use cold water, what happens when you're making a pie crust and you you have cold uh, lard or butter or uh, shortening as opposed to room temperature. You understand all of these little differences, but you don't use most of that most of the time. If you are involved in any kind of automobile mechanics or if you're involved in any, any sort of engineering or whatever it is, you probably have learned and forgotten a vast amount of information that simply provides the context within which you operate in terms of whatever whatever it is that you are doing. And that's the way it is in every area of life. We have to learn, I think, probably about a 100 times more information than on any subject than what we actually are using at any point in time. And the reason I make that point is you always find superficial Christians coming along and making statements that sound so pious and so right that, well, if we just applied everything that we knew... We would be such, we would be so much better. Let's not emphasize all this knowledge. Let's not, we spend all this time just filling our heads with all this biblical data and all this doctrine, and yet we only use 1% of what we know. Well, that's probably true. We probably never use more than 1% of what we know. So rather than learning a hundred things, we ought to learn a million things. And then our 1% application would be so much better. But you see, people come along and they don't think that way. They just say, oh, let's use more of what we know. You never use more in any field of endeavor in life. So we always have to have this storehouse of knowledge, and a lot of it's going to be academic knowledge because, once again, we may not believe it. We may not, before it can ever be converted into the heart, into the cardia, which is the innermost thinking part, of the soul before it can ever be converted there as epinosis, we have to understand it as academic knowledge, and, and sometimes that takes a lot of time. And sometimes we may be learning certain things; it just stays as gnosis for a while before we finally learn a few points of doctrine that comes in and clicks with what we've learned as academic knowledge. Suddenly, it all begins to make sense. We believe it, and that is transferred by the Holy Spirit into the storehouse of our cardia as epinosis. Of course, then we have another problem. We have to apply it, and that calls for volition one more time, either positive volition to apply it or negative volition not to apply. Epinosis is where you get into applicable knowledge. Then it's going to, you can apply it in terms of spiritual growth. You can't apply a- academic knowledge because that's not under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. It hasn't been converted to spiritually usable uh, doctrine yet. So you have epinosis knowledge, which is what you believe, what you understand, what you believe, and what has been transferred into the heart as uh, usable doctrine. Then you have to use your volition again to apply it. So you see volition comes into play again and again and again as you go through this process. But it is gnosis as academic knowledge that is the problem. Now, in Corinth, they were one of those 
churches that were on an intellectual high. And this happens with uh, certain kinds of people in certain cultural circumstances, and they confuse knowing a lot about the Bible with some level of spiritual maturity. And I saw clear examples of that many times when I was in seminary. I think it's, as I said before, I think it's typical of, of spiritually immature people. I think it's also typical of a situation in seminary or Bible college where you are just cranking through enormous amounts of data, passing exams, making high grades, it's real easy to somehow think that, well, because I'm a straight-A student and because I know all of these things about the Bible and I can now read Greek and Hebrew and read the Bible in the original languages, that I must be spiritually mature. But that doesn't, one thing does not equate to the other. So the the uh, sanctimonious slogan in Corinth was that we know that we have all knowledge. We have all knowledge. And they were emphasizing the, this because of what they have been told. But Paul comes in, and he just punctures their little balloon of arrogance with the statement, knowledge puffs up. See, they're saying, we have all gnosis. We don't need to be taught. We have all knowledge. We are spiritually self-sufficient now. And Paul just comes right in and pops their balloon and says, no, Gnosis puffs up. Gnosis makes makes arrogant, but only love edifies. So he uses the word fusioi here, which is that love makes arrogant. I mean, knowledge makes arrogant. And he contrasts that with love, love that edifies from the Greek verb or katameo, which means to build up, to construct something of strength, something solid. And that's why we use the diagram of the spiritual soul fortress. It pictures the construction of an edifice. In that case, it's a soul fortress. Uh, years ago, you were probably taught the concept of the edification complex of the soul. And in the process of Pastor Theme's development of understanding of certain things, what he did was he started off with understanding the uh, uh, the edification complex is the fact that from, from passages like this that there is something that is built in the soul. It's immaterial. You don't look in the soul. I think some people got the idea there was something that actually looked like that schematic in the soul. But you've got to understand these diagrams that we use are, are not real. It's sort of like... A, uh, if you've ever looked at the electronic schematic for a house, well, it, it doesn't look anything like reality, but it is something that expresses on paper what is going on in reality. So it is simply a visual way of trying to demonstrate what is going on that's immaterial in terms of the construction or building of something of strength in the soul. And when you build that in the soul, as the believer is edified or built up, his soul is strengthened so that he can encounter various circumstances and situations in life, and he is able to apply doctrine, and he is able to handle those situations on the basis of the promises and procedures outlined in the Word of God. So love edifies, but remember, he's not talking here. He doesn't specifically relate this to to God's love at this point. He is saying love edifies, and he is talking within the context of human relationships. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant, and what happens when you start getting arrogant people together is you create divisions, and that, of course, is one of the basic problems he addressed back in chapter 1. But in contrast, love, that is love that is the result. See, when you have spiritual growth taking place as a result of the grace learning spiral, 
and it's all operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then as epinosis develops in the soul, what, what it builds in the soul is the character of Jesus Christ as defined in and described in Galatians 5, 21 to 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Notice the first fruit of the Spirit is going to be love. And that is what is being developed in the soul. So that character is being developed in the soul as part of that edification through epinosis, and then it is worked out in terms of application. So Paul says that that you may think that you have all knowledge, but gnosis simply makes arrogant, but love, that is love that is the result of epinosis, love edifies, it builds up, other believers. Once again, we get into this situation that there is a ministry of one believer to another believer. This is not talking about simply learning doctrine, but the mutual encouragement that comes from one believer to another as a function of what is true biblical fellowship. True biblical fellowship is the interaction of one believer with another believer. Often we're encouraged or, or praying for one another. We we, and this isn't, this is not, I always have to put this caution in here because you always have some people who look around the congregation, they don't really have a relationship with somebody else. They don't know somebody else and all of a sudden they want to get in their life and start trying to quote help them and, uh, they're going to minister to them and, uh, yeah, they're just putting their nose into somebody else's business. But we all have relationships, closer relationships with people that, that we have known for some time and people that that uh, we uh, communicate our problems to and difficulties and some of the uh, adversity that we go through. And they will pray for us. Sometimes they'll point out doctrine. They'll say, well, you know, uh, that great application here, something the Lord taught me was, was thus and so. And so we are strengthened and edified by other believers. It's not just an issue of, well, don't you know this, you idiot, but which is arrogance. But this is how the Lord has taught this same principle to me. So the edification here is not the edification that comes simply as a result of the pastor teacher teaching, but is the result of epinosis doctrine in the soul where there is ministry of one believer to another. In verse 2, Paul says, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, if anyone thinks he knows anything, and here he uses the Greek verb doikeo, For thinking. Dokeo. And this has to do, not so much, it's not, it's not the function of, uh, noeo, which is news, which is related to the noun news for mind. Uh, dokeo here has to do with what it seems, uh, to be or what appears to be. When we were beginning our study in First John, we talked about docetism, a false view of Christ where it just appeared as if God had become a man, but he didn't actually become a man. Well, that word docetism comes from this Greek word dokeo, which has to do with appearance so or, or, or a false assumption about something sometimes. So here Paul says, and if, and here it's a... Uh, 
a first-class condition if, and we're going to assume that they do, if someone thinks or it appears to them or it seems to them that, that he knows anything. So they've come to this assumption that they, uh, they have knowledge. They don't really, but uh, it's just an appearance. They just have this facade of, of academic information. It's not real knowledge. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Just academic knowledge alone isn't indicative of spiritual, uh, of anything spiritual. It's not indicative of spiritual growth. It's not indicative of spiritual advance. Just because you think you know something, you probably don't. And then in verse 3 he says, but if anyone loves God, so the contrast is between the person who thinks he knows something and the person who loves God. He says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now, this terminology should be familiar to most of you who have been studying through, who have gone through the study and First John with me. Most of this should be pretty, pretty familiar to you. Let's turn over briefly to First John chapter two. First John chapter two. If anyone loves God, first class condition, if anyone loves God, and they do, this one is known by him. Notice the emphasis here is on God's knowledge of us, not our knowing God. So it is reversing that to emphasize the fact that everything ultimately comes from God, not from us. Well, if we look over in 1 John 2, we seem to see the same terminology. Starting in verse 3, we read, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, the person who claims to have knowledge about God and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. They do not have a relationship with truth. That is, in this context, that truth would be epinosis doctrine. If you claim to have knowledge of God and to have a relationship with him and you're not applying Keeping his commandments means you're not applying doctrine. And you're not applying doctrine, then you're lying, and you do not have a relationship with the truth, that is, in terms of epinosis knowledge. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is brought to completion in him. By this we know that we are in him. And when we studied that, I made the point of saying that the love of God is an objective genitive and should be translated love for God. We grow and mature in our love for God, and love for God is the motivation for impersonal love for other believers. So we have to start by learning doctrine because we can't keep his word unless we first know his word. So that is why doctrinal orientation precedes personal love for God. And as we learn his word and then apply his word, then the personal love for God is brought to completion that motivates us. And by that we know or we can see that we are in him, that we are in fellowship and abiding in Christ. Now, Paul makes it the point slightly differently. He says, if anyone loves God. So what we learn from 1 John is that to love God, we have to know God. And that is exemplified by keeping his commandments. So when Paul says, if anyone loves God, this means somebody who has reached a point 
where they have doctrinal orientation. They are applying that doctrine in their life. They are keeping his commandments, and that is how you know you love God. You don't know you love God simply because you have certain feelings towards God. You come to church, and you you hear some inspirational message, and you go home, and you say, wasn't it good to have been there this morning? I just felt so good. You know, God loves me, and you sang some hymns that were that had a certain kind of music to them, so everybody went home in a certain uh, spiritual mindset, and, and they felt good about being in church, which is how most people think of, of worship. No knowledge of God or loving God is exemplified in a very objective manner. It is not subjective. Now, this is something you ought to take home and apply in, in marriage as well, just a, just a side application. You love your spouse through fulfilling your role as husband or wife. You love your spouse by keeping God's commandments in relationship to the marriage. You demonstrate your love for your spouse in these kinds of objective ways. It's not emotion. It's not waking up. and That may be there, and hopefully that is there. But that's not the essence or the core of the kind of love that is going to solidify a marriage. It is a love that is based on absolutes and objectivity and not feeling because emotions are going to be, uh, they can be manipulated and they can be affected by any number of factors. As we grow older, uh, it can be affected by, uh, by chemical changes that take place in the body as you mature. You can go through circumstances in life where you're, you're involved in, in uh, certain adversities that seem to just uh, dominate your thinking, dominate your, your thought, and that affects things in life so that, that you may not have those warm, fuzzy feelings that you once had, the butterflies in your stomach that you once had when you first fell in love. And, uh, but as you mature in love, there is something there that is not based on emotion but is based on objectivity and reality in a relationship with God, and that is what real love is. It's measured in objective standards and not subjective standards. So if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And that second phrase, this one is known uh, by, by God, is hupa plus the genitive autu, which emphasizes the source of that knowledge. This one is known by God, that it, it emphasizes that relationship. Let's see if I can draw this out on the overhead. You start off with that basic spiritual skill, the basic spiritual skill of doctrinal orientation. So you come to Bible class and you study the Word and you take it in and you listen to tapes and you're in fellowship and you're under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so this doctrinal orientation in turn is going to produce in your soul epinosis. As epinosis grows and it starts off builds more and more, then that then the Holy Spirit who's working with that epinosis is going to produce certain character qualities in your soul that then work themselves out in terms of application. And one of these is going to be, let's put a P here, personal love for God the Father. 
Now, as you st- under doctrinal orientation, you study the Scripture and the filling of the Holy Spirit. This becomes epinosis. You study the Word under doctrinal orientation, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and this becomes epinosis. Then you apply it. There you keep God's commandments. There is application of doctrine. Now, application of doctrine is not going to come automatically. Sometimes Christians get the screwiest ideas, and they and, and a lot of this is just trying to grapple with the information, trying to understand what it means to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. But I remember talking to people and get the idea that, it, well, if I'm filled with the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is going to make this easier for me. The Holy Spirit doesn't apply it for you. The Holy Spirit doesn't make the difficult decisions for you. The Holy Spirit is going to make it clear to you what you need to do, and that is not necessarily going to be a path that is free from opposition, a path that is something that is going to make you feel better, a path that is going to make, seem to make life easier. Sometimes it's going to make life more difficult. Sometimes there are going to be, uh, there's going to be opposition. Sometimes when you take a step in obedience to the to the word, it is going to estrange you from family members. It is going to uh, create uh, a loss of friendship. Sometimes it may even cause uh, the loss of a job. Sometimes in, in many countries in this world, sometimes it may result in, in political oppression, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. Uh, I'm reading a fascinating book right now, and I will be talking more about it as we go along, but it's written by two men, brothers, who are now Southern Baptist theologians, professors of theology and church history at uh, two different Southern Baptist seminaries, and they were raised Muslim. And when they were in their late teens, one of the brothers became a believer, and over the course of the next year, the other two brothers became believers, and then their father, who uh, they adored, their father, uh, disinherited them and didn't speak to either one of them again for 18 years until it was his deathbed, and he never did uh, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that is what happens when you apply doctrine many times. It doesn't make life easier. It may make life a, a tremendous, tremendously more difficult and create a host of other adversities. But we apply doctrine, we keep his word, and that s- signifies that we are developing that personal love for God the Father. As a result of that, what's happening is our fellowship is deepening and strengthening. So that fellowship, remember, is a two-way road. We have seen this in Scripture again and again in our study in 1 John, where we saw that if we abide in Him, He abides in us. If we love Him, His love uh, for us is manifested more, and so that relationship with God is a two-way road that strengthens and deepens, and that's the process of growth. This is what ha- what Paul is referring to here is in contrast to the person who's just operating on an academic information kick, that uh, instead they're applying doctrine, so the person who loves God is known by him, and God hates arrogance, so God is not going to be strengthening his relationship with an arrogant believer. Now, in contrast to this, Paul is going to now take this principle that he's outlined in verses uh, 1 through 3, 
this principle of love versus arrogance, the principle of academic knowledge uh, versus epinosis knowledge, and he's going to uh, apply this to a particular problem that was facing the church in Corinth, and that is the problem of eating meat offered to idols, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idol, we know, that is, we have certain knowledge, that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. Now, there, now we have a couple of problems here I'm not going to have time to address this morning, but just to introduce this, he's going to apply the principle of love for God versus just utilizing an academic principle. And the academic principle, is, a, as a believer, you know that there's nothing significant about an idol. That's not a real God. It's just wood or clay or stone. But yet Paul is going to bring out the principle that there are other issues at stake here related to the spiritual life of other believers. You may know certain things, and yet that, um, that knowledge needs to be tempered with an understanding of the weaknesses of other believers. It doesn't mean that, that this principle isn't true, that an idol isn't nothing, is nothing, but that there are other factors involved. So we will come back next time and we'll begin to look at this in terms of how it's applied. We need to look at idolatry and demonism, the development of idolatry, how idolatry manifests itself today before we ever get to a point of application. And I think this will be one of the more interesting studies that we go through in 1 Corinthians with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to see how these things relate, how uh, you have provided a grace procedure for us to learn your word, but that it's not simply uh, information, academic knowledge. It is not simply uh, accumulating facts or doctrines, but it is uh, believing them, learning them, applying them in our lives so that it deepens and strengthens our relationship with you. And that as this deepens and strengthens, it has an impact on all of our other relationships in terms of our impersonal and unconditional love for other believers. Father, the greatest example of love is what took place on the cross, that you demonstrated your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who may be unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you have never put your faith alone in Christ alone, then this is an opportunity for you to make sure that you will have eternal life and that you will spend eternity in heaven. The issue is not religion. The issue is not Ritual, the issue is not morality, the issue isn't even your sins, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for those sins when he died on the cross. And so the only issue confronting you right now is whether or not you are willing to trust in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the full penalty, and that you are relying upon him and him alone for your salvation. God the Father is omniscient, he knows exactly what you are trusting in for salvation. And once you put your faith, in, faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation that can never be taken away from you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today, that you would help us to put these things together with other doctrines that we have learned, that we may be able to 
uh, store them in our soul as epinosis and that we may be able to apply them consistently in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.